Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I also want to let you know that I do another podcast. It covers brand new movies out in the theaters. It is called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Just search for it wherever you're listening to this right now, and you'll probably find it. Today we're going to continue on with the second part in a three-part series in which we cover films of the 1980s where a romance novelist is one of the main characters. Actually, the first two in this trilogy are actually joined together for reasons you'll come to understand in a minute. The film I'm going to be reviewing today comes from 1985. It is called The Jewel of the Nile, and it is a sequel to the film that I covered last week, Romancing the Stone. It's a PG-rated film. It does have violence, language, sensuality, and some nudity. The runtime is an hour and 46 minutes. The film brings back Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, and Danny DeVito with Spiris Focus, Avner Eisenberg, and Paul David Magid in supporting roles. Louis Teague is the director this time out. The screenplay credited to Mark Rosenthal and Lawrence Connor. Now, as I mentioned, The Jewel of the Nile is a sequel to that successful romantic adventure comedy of 1984. That was Robert Zemeckis's Romancing the Stone. That featured the same main actors, Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, Danny DeVito. But here, you don't have the return of Robert Zemeckis or the screenwriter, Diane Thomas, to guide it. If you listen to my last show, you'll know that Robert Zemeckis had been unceremoniously and really unnecessarily fired by 20th Century Fox from his gig directing Cocoon for them because they thought that Romancing the Stone was going to tank before it was released. So they really didn't have a big chance of getting him on board again, especially as he had moved on to direct Back to the Future in 1985. So in as director is Roger Corman protege Louis Teague. He was known more for his chillers, and that included films uh, like the cult film. He directed Alligator back in 1980, And then he did two adaptations of Stephen King works. It was Cujo in 1983 and Cat's Eye, which was a film that Teague was still working on when he took on The Jewel of the Nile. The screenwriting team of Mark Rosenthal and Lawrence Connor, their only previous production would come earlier in 1985. That was The Legend of Billie Jean. They were hired on to script this new adventure. Overall, I would say that The Jewel of the Nile is a more lavish production than Romancing the Stone. It's more of an attempt to elevate the series into kind of an epic. It puts spectacle and explosions to the forefront. It relies on sometimes silly stereotypes to pass in place of characterizations. It really just wants to keep moving. Now, as far as the plot line, it's really hard to live up to this happily ever after ending, especially for a romance novelist like Joan Wilder, played here once again by Kathleen Turner. Joan has learned more about romance in The Chase than she has in the union of two would-be lovebirds. It really does affect her work. She struggles to come up with new dreams, new situations to fuel her romance novels, and that results in a prolonged bout of writer's block for Joan. As Joan and her hunky man of adventure, Jack Colton, played, of course, by Michael Douglas, they've spent their time since we last saw them living the life of luxury. They've been partying in Cannes, and they've been sailing on their yacht, the Angelina, off of the French Riviera. 
But then they've done it so long now that boredom has begun to set in on their idyllic lifestyle. They start realizing that the excitement that is in, supposed to be in their lives now, it's actually caught more in reminiscing about their past, and it causes them to wonder if their good run of romance has actually run out as they near the expectation of their potential marriage in Greece. Meanwhile, a well-known leader within the fictional North African country of Kadir, he's a supremely wealthy sheik named Omar. Omar approaches Joan to write his life story on the hope that this book would elevate his status among his people to become perhaps the new emperor there. Joan sees new possibilities to change her scenery here, her outlook, her horizons as a writer, and that causes Jack and Joan to reluctantly split up. But when Jack catches wind that Omar may be in possession of the mysteriously alluring so-called jewel of the Nile, his soldier of fortune ways end up getting the better of him. He decides to get a closer look in Kadir, as does the diminutive lowlife named Ralph, who we saw played by Danny DeVito in the first film. Ralph insists that Jack owes him enough for them to help each other to get to Jewel and to split their fortune once gotten. And meanwhile, Joan discovers that Omar's dark side and his attempt at a bloody power grab that leads her to try to get the scoop on him, as well as to help spring a valuable prisoner who is seen as a folk hero to the people of the region, and therefore Omar's greatest threat to be respected as their would-be leader. That's the basic setup of the film. A little bit more plot-heavy this time out than the previous effort. Michael Douglas does return here as the producer of this film, although he was rumored to think that it really wasn't the best idea to come back, despite the success that he had with Romancing the Stone. Nevertheless, the original contract that was drawn up for Romancing the Stone from 20th Century Fox had this main cast obligated to come in for a sequel should they decide to make one. And given that this was their biggest hit for 20th Century Fox in this era that was no longer producing Star Wars films, they decided that they needed to play the hottest hand they had at the time. So Douglas reluctantly decided to make a quick follow-up. He got behind the film as producer. He tried to make the best of this situation from a money standpoint. And this time, the makers ended up embracing its comparisons to the Indiana Jones adventures instead of trying to just shrug it off as a coincidence as they had with the first entry. And they throw in a little bit of the James Bond formula that had been so prevalent in action films of the 1980s as well. Now, like Douglas, Kathleen Turner also was not keen on returning for a sequel. And she insisted that she was still owed money for the first film. And because she didn't care for the script for this second part, she called it terrible and formulaic. She didn't understand why the original screenwriter of the first film was not even asked to provide a screenplay for the follow-up. Diane Thomas being that screenwriter, she was asked but reportedly wanted more money than Douglas was willing to shell out for that screenplay. She was already busy working with Steven Spielberg on a script that would eventually become released in 1989, as always. Kathleen Turner's holdout prompted the studio to file a lawsuit against her for $25 million if she did not do the film, and the threat of keeping her from appearing in any other movies as well on top of that. Turner and Fox did eventually come to an agreement, of course, which included multiple rewrites to try to iron out some of the things that she had found objectionable. Now, everyone agreed that the original Rosenthal and Connor script was really not what they wanted. So they brought in TV comedy talents Ken Levine and David Isaacs. They were called in and they made uncredited contributions, especially in adding a French Riviera opening act that they felt that they needed in order to tie what was going on in the second film with what was going on in the first entry. 
And Diane Thomas herself was also chipping in with some ideas for a couple of days to try to make it work. That was one of the conditions that Turner asked for, to bring Diane Thomas back on board. And for her effort, Douglas bought her a Porsche, which, in a very sad turn of events, would be the very vehicle that she, as a passenger, would lose her life in in this terrible accident weeks later. And that's a very sad thing to contemplate there. Douglas was pleased with what Levine, Isaacs, and Thomas were able to do with the original script. However, Turner still did not like it, so she ended up hammering out changes alone with Douglas until they ended up coming to a compromise on where they wanted the film to go. It ended up being wise for the film's success because the chemistry between Douglas and Turner is really the best part of their collaborations together. However, unfortunately, Levine and Isaacs were unavailable to continue to work on location to help continue to work with this script. So Douglas ended up bringing back the original screenwriters, Rosenthal and Connor, on board. And unfortunately, they started to ditch many of the newer and better ideas, and they started putting back in place their original ones while they were trying to film, resulting in that weakened script once again that nobody really liked. The characterizations here really are stretching things a bit. Joan Wilder here is shown more as an international celebrity now for her best-selling novels. In the first film, she was just a modestly successful scribe of trashy romances, but here she is just one of the most well-known people on Earth. The story ends up stretching things even further by turning the character of Joan into a would-be biographer and then a serious investigative journalist in order to try to justify this need for her to lurk around and find out as much unsavory information as she can about her initially benevolent Omar that will reveal that he is a true wolf in sheep's clothing after all is said and done, something you will suspect as soon as you see him in this film. Perhaps the more disappointing aspect of the changes that were made to Joan's character is how little she and Jack seem to value their relationship. They're willing to part ways in the course of this very short disagreement that they have with the makers of the film thinking that it would be more interesting to see the would-be lovers try to fight to be with each other again in a formula fashion. However, the reasons for their breakup makes them look very shallow and very self-serving and all too quick to throw away what they've been building up to the point where it devalues the relationship as something that would likely be only temporary and our interest in seeing another happily ever after for the couple ends up being muted significantly as a result. Now Danny DeVito is shoehorned in here with an exceedingly contrived angle that has him following Jack across the world to get what he feels he's owed by him. He becomes a barnacle to the adventure once he learns of the valuable jewel. Ostensibly, DeVito is here for comic relief, and while the actor is up for that role, the repartee between Douglas and Turner while they're in peril is still the best part and still the funniest part of the film. Meanwhile, they add another comic sidekick role to a kooky local wise man, the duo encounter that they must secure to safety, and that relegates the Ralph character as a needless addition this time out, even though they really wanted to keep DeVito's services here. They don't really give him a lot of funny stuff to do. Greek actor Spiros Phokas plays the main heavy of the film, Omar Khalifa. He's modeled to be this mix of several dictators in the region, including, you would imagine, Muammar Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein. His voice was rumored to have been dubbed after preview audiences said they had a difficult time understanding him through his accent. Ethnic stereotypes, unfortunately, abound, as they do with a lot of films in the 1980s. Our heroes not only have to deal with a whole host of unsavory depictions of Muslims and Arabs, which are kind of hard to watch today, they're painted as either evil infidels or comical mystics, 
But they also encounter this antiquated version of an African tribe, and they do so with seemingly no qualms. Many Hollywood films of the 1980s tended to do this, unfortunately, and that's what makes a lot of films of the 1980s a little bit more dated for modern audiences. Now, as with the first film, the adventure is peppered with humor, much of which is pretty whimsical. They don't end up pulling out any knee slappers, though. I would say that the best scene of the film, at least for me, is also one of the silliest. You have Jack and Joan, they're dangling over this deep chasm. They're tied up with ropes that are being gnawed on by rats down below. The scene ends up really drawing out that romantic chemistry because the two, facing seemingly certain death, end up expressing their love for one another in their final moments in ways that bring back some of that magic that had eroded by their superficial breakup at the beginning of the film. This perilous situation is not just the most romantic part of this movie, but it's also the funniest. There's a moment where Jack expresses disgust at their predicament, questioning what kind of sick, psychopathic mind would come up with such a way to kill someone. To which Joan ends up revealing that the bad guys ended up stealing that idea from her best-selling book. That sadistic psychopath is none other than Joan herself. The Jewel of the Nile is shot mostly in parts of France and then Morocco for the bulk of it. The latter locales in Morocco being particularly challenging to slog through to the finish. As with Romancing the Stone, the Jewel of the Nile was plagued with heavy rains in what normally was an arid country. This time it was wrecking havoc on the sets that were constructed for the purpose of the movie. And when the rains finally subsided, the high temperatures, ranging over 120 degrees on most days, made it a very difficult and tension-filled time for all involved. Further complications would end up arising when some of the props for the film were being held back while going through customs in Morocco, and that prompted the producers to have to shell out more money. They had to bribe the officials to get their needed equipment into the country. And then there was this observance of Ramadan during the making of the film, a period of fasting for many. It ended up affecting their ability to maintain morale among the many hungry extras that they were utilizing for key scenes. And the cast and crew would end up growing frustrated with director Louis Teague for not having enough know-how to navigate this very high-budget action flick, including one particular debacle one day where hours were spent setting up this elaborate scene in this very high heat, only to discover that the cameras, after all is said and done, did not have any film to capture the scene, and they would have to do it all again the next day. Further tragedies for the film occurred. The death of the art director, Richard Docking, and the location manager, Brian Coates, they died in Morocco in this airplane piloted by a man named Richard Koch while scouting locales. The film was dedicated to the three of them, as well as I mentioned earlier, the Romancing the Stone screenwriter, the creator of the main characters, Diane Thomas. The art director, Docking's widow, ended up suing Fox and the producers, including Michael Douglas, for the sum of $3 million for his wrongful death. The one thing that is different here from the first entry is that there's this soundtrack, the soundtrack was very useful during that time in marketing a film. The Eddie Grant song, Romancing the Stone, that was made for the first entry. However, it was not put into the film, except for a little bit of the instrumental in the background of one particular scene. But it also was not put on the official soundtrack. Eddie Grant ended up having to release it on his own album, and it ended up going to top 40 success. This time out, though, the studio learned its lesson. They commissioned Jive Records to put in songs. They contrived a lot of ways to get them into the movie, including having the rebel faction known as the Sufis carrying a boombox wherever they go, playing another one of these tracks. They're always playing a Jive Arista Records artist on their boombox. I don't know how they figured that out. Billy Ocean's When the Going Gets Tough, 
the tough get going, that not only fits in with one of the motifs of the film in their in the dialogue, they actually mention it quite a few times in the film, but the trio of Douglas and DeVito and Turner ended up appearing in the very music video for that song as background singers. The single would zoom up the pop charts internationally. It actually peaked at number two in the United States. It was denied the top spot by Whitney Houston's smash, How Will I Know? But it was the number one song for many weeks in the UK and Australia and Canada. A huge hit for Billy Ocean and good marketing for the movie. Now, with a reported budget of over $20 million, that was more than twice of that of its predecessor, more money would go to a few elaborate action set pieces, including this very lengthy, maybe overly lengthy, chase sequence with the protagonists in this cockpit of an F-15 fighter plane. There's also this very lavish Nuremberg-esque political rally toward the end of the film that has over a thousand extras in front of this very elaborately built and subsequently destroyed platform to extol the spiritual greatness of Omar to his people. That further investment ended up proving to be worth the cost. The Jewel of the Nile would become a success at the box office. It bested its predecessor's take by scoring over $95 million worldwide. It landed as the number seven film of 1985 in the United States in terms of box office performance. Even though, like its predecessor, it would never secure the top spot for any week of its release. It had legs as well. It was denied the number one spot, though, mostly because of the rabid success of Rocky IV at that time. It would also greatly benefit from having a very generous PG rating. PG-13 had been in existence since the summer the year before, and despite having quite a bit of violence and a little bit of nudity here, although, to be fair, that nudity is more natural. It comes from the Nubian tribe scene. There's some spicy language here. It easily would earn a PG-13 today by the later, more fine-tuned standards that we have. That PG is really like a G-rated movie, maybe with a couple of cuss words or maybe with drinking or something like that. This definitely was a pretty strong, still, PG for its time. And despite having quite a bit of success with this film, interestingly, they decided to end the series here. There were initial talks to bring everyone back for a third go-round in the late 1980s into the 1990s. There was a treatment that they dubbed the Crimson Eagle that was reported to involve this heist in Jack and Joan's adventures in Thailand. Jack and Joan would now have a couple of kids and they were in their teenage years, but Douglas ended up scrapping that after a while. However, 10 years after that, he ended up flirting with a new project for this series. He now called it Racing the Monsoon, but that never got very far either. Then it was decided that there would be a remake of Romancing the Stone that was put into development in around 2007. However, eventually a theatrical effort was scrapped in favor of a TV show, which really didn't pan out as well. Even if another entry did not happen for the series, the popular trio of actors would be reunited once again in the 1980s for the unrelated The War of the Roses. Douglas and Turner come back to explore the darkest side of marriage ever put to film, probably. And Danny DeVito would not only be the co-star once again, but he would take the helm as the director, leading it to become kind of a trilogy of sorts, even though that third film, completely unrelated to the other two. But a lot of the pleasures are still the same. Nevertheless, I do think that The Jewel of the Nile is a lesser movie to Romancing the Stone. It really is kind of a nonsensical movie. It, it has a few chuckles. It has a few good moments. It has nice performances. But all in all, it's pretty much a mess, and it doesn't quite get it all together. So I have to give it two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that it had the tools, it had the talent to actually be a pretty good and worthwhile film, but it never really comes together 
as a unified whole enough to give it that recommendation. So two and a half stars goes to The Jewel of the Niles. As far as what we're going to get into next week, even though this is a three-part series about films of the 1980s with a romance author as one of the protagonists, I'm going to go to 1989 for a starring vehicle that features the unlikely pairing of Roseanne Barr and Meryl Streep. I'm talking about a comedy that came out in 1989 called She-Devil. So for those of you who like to keep up with the movies, She-Devil for next week. Thank you everyone for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies.